0: The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media, nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to The Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today, we are joined by Christine Mortyne. Following a 25-year career performing, teaching, and conducting classical music, Christine Mortyne switched from conducting instruments to flying by them. Christine is currently a FAA-appointed designated pilot examiner who continues to find time for dual instruction, especially tailwheel endorsements. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, Christine was an AOPA Safety Seminar Presenter and Flight Instructor Refresher Course Instructor. She owns a Cessna 185, which she enjoys flying throughout the United States, in addition to her newly acquired Super D Decathlon used for dual instruction. Always investing in the general aviation community, she has served as a board member to local EAA and 99 chapters. She is a current board member of WOSU Public Media, the National Parks Conservation Association, and Professional Pilots Association. Educationally driven, Christine chairs her local 99 Scholarship Committee, is a tailwheel endorsement contributor for the Ladies Love Tail Scholarship, and donates sightseeing flights in her spare time. Christine has flown for Angel Flights, Young Eagles, and was a hospice volunteer. One of her favorite volunteer roles is as Ohio State Liaison for the Recreational Aviation Foundation, which combines her love of the outdoors, hiking, travel, adventure, developing local airfields, and hanging out with other adventurous pilots. I could not be more excited to have her join me today. Welcome, Christine. Thanks, great to be here, Laura. It's great to have you. All that to say, how did you get your start in aviation?
1: Well, like so many of us, I was enthralled with flying since I was a little girl. I mean, always looking up. And when I was 14, I raised money and my parents let me fly to Scotland by myself to visit family there. And at that time, the rules and regs were a little more relaxed. And I got to go up and hang out in the cockpit with the pilots. And that was wonderful. But life had a different... Uh, path for me, and I actually didn't start flying till I was 45. And that was my husband who heard me talk about aviation. He gave me an intro flight, and boy, does he rue the day because uh, we haven't stopped since.
0: <laughs> now, having the opportunity to be up in a flight deck, do you think that was the moment that you knew that you definitely wanted to pursue aviation down the line?
1: No, it reinforced it. I mean, I. I, the science, the, I wanted more that looked really great to me. Um, no, it just reinforced it. I'm kind of a lifetime adventurer anyway. So that sort of fit.
0: (laughs) Now, as you mentioned, life had a different plan and path for you. And before working in aviation, you worked as a classical musician. Can you tell me a little bit more about that career and how it led you ultimately to aviation?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking that. 25 years career as a professional classical musician. I was a trained cellist and pianist and became a concert soprano and, you know, played and worked in orchestras and chamber music and opera and (laughs) all this crazy stuff. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time coaching and, um, was an adjunct professor and taught in public schools. So this package just had a lot of different silos in it. Um, The culmination was uh, being a conductor the last 10 years of that 25. And I was founder and director of a professional Baroque orchestra. And I have to say that pooled all of my training into one amazing experience. And I, I loved that as the founder and the conductor, it was great. And it, (laughs) that's kind of when I made my transition. So I get a kick out of saying I went from conducting instruments to flying by them.
0: I don't know many people that would be able to make that claim. (laughs) Now, how did you end up working in classical music?
1: Uh, My parents supported that, you know, when I was 12 or I don't know, Eight, I started piano and cello and I was just born a musician. So it was a natural river that just swept me. And I just kept staying in that for a long time.
0: Now, what do you feel was the most valuable lesson or skill you brought to aviation from music?
1: I enjoy thinking about that. I think it's the ownership of my own actions, and you could take that a step more of uh, discipline. I mean, think about it. If you're a soprano standing in front of an orchestra, being the soloist, it's kind of like you can't just stop and say, oh, hold on. could we start over? I made a mistake. You have to really own where you are and command it. And, and it's, it's that or nothing. <laughs> and it's kind of like being PIC. We can't really pull the plane over and just stop and sort of think about it or restart it. You know, it's kind of uh, so I think that sense of uh, discipline and preparedness and, you know, uh, you got to know what you're doing to to make it right. I think that that was a, a great tool.
0: I know the idea has come up on this show before of aviation having some of the most passionate people towards an industry and that maybe only music could rival the passion that you see within the aviation industry.
1: Wow, that's crazy you said that because that was the other thing, you know, it's like being PIC, but what drives us to take those chances? What drove me to be willing to stand on that stage for a hall of 2,000 people and open my mouth, right? And the same thing that drives me to want to fly in an aircraft in the air and it's passion As you mentioned, you came
0: to aviation as a second career. How do you feel having or not having a mentor influenced your aviation career path and your flight training?
1: This is one of my favorite topics because I love my mentors. I've had multiple mentors and I hope, hope, hope I have many, many more. I think mentors are really valuable. They, let me see, nothing beats the privilege of being with a more experienced pilot who is inviting you to be where you are, be vulnerable and to learn from them. And they, they, that safety is just invaluable to be able to be vulnerable and being vulnerable is not a bad thing. That's, I mean, we should all take that on a little bit more and maybe there's a different word than vulnerable, <laughs> but just being willing to be your raw self and learn and make mistakes that you learned from. So I think mentors create that kind of a, at least they have for me and they've just been great. And I hope for more.
0: No, I, I sort of joke at this point, I have a good roster of mentors sort of built up and I'm very lucky that depending on what I want to ask about or have questions on, I have different people I can go to. And I think having as many mentors as I'm, I'm able to is, is the trick for a lot of things for me in aviation.
1: Yeah. You, again, just nailed it. I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. We learn the best when we, we feel safe and have trust.
0: Now, what was the biggest challenge you faced while going through flight training?
1: I think as most people uh, managing this huge monster of learning how to fly with regular everyday life, that's a challenge because it's big. Aviation is wonderful and it's a whole new language and all kinds of disciplines. So it's a lot to manage when you're just adding it. So hopefully when, you know, then you quickly learn Well, I have to make some compromises because this is going to need a little more time and energy (laughs) than I realized. So that was a challenge. And I, um, another example for me was when I purchased and was getting training in the Cessna 185. And I'll share with you, there were some naysayers out there. Now, they never said it to my face, but my mentor and my instructor, who was giving me the time that insurance required, which I'm glad insurance required that much time, he shared with me about those naysayers. He said, I I wasn't sure I should even tell you. I'm like, well, I'm glad you did. You know, that's fine. And then I didn't know what to say. And he said, well, Christine, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to say anything. We're going to show them. And that was great. That was a little challenge, but I understand and and uh, everything's fine. <laughs> How
0: do you feel coming to aviation as a second career maybe influenced the way you approached flight training and studying?
1: Yeah, well, that uh, my first career helped with that, too. You know, score study, I'd be up at 4 a.m. to be able to to mark the parts and and, and do score study. So the time and the, the research fit me well because I had been doing that already.
0: Currently, you are a CFI, CFII, MEI, and TCI. What type of flight training do you most enjoy
1: instructing? Gosh, I thoroughly enjoy instructing, period. Um, though I'd say within that, I really like Meeting the client where they are, so appropriate building blocks, and um, you know, encouraging self confidence. I like those pieces. Um, now, I also am a designated pilot examiner for the FAA, so that really is what my priority of for my time is right now. And of course, as I'm sure the same in Canada. Well, I don't know what the assumptions are there, but but our our exams are generally you know 6 hours that sounds horrible but a lot of some of it's paperwork some of it's the oral some of it's the flight so that is my priority now as a person who owns two tail draggers and one of them I use for dual instruction i think at this point i would have to say that giving tailwheel instruction is probably my favorite at the moment because I can't do all the instructing I would love to do. Um, So that's kind of where my head is now, and I'm offering spin training and hopefully aerobatic training sometime soon since I sold the 140 and now own a super decathlon. So that has some challenges for me, which is kind of good too.
0: Among your many different qualifications and the organizations that you're affiliated with, you are also an AOPA Air Safety Institute presenter, can you tell me a little bit more about the Air Safety Institute and how you became a presenter?
1: Thanks so much for asking about that. AOPA is is a, a terrific GA advocate for us. The Air Safety Institute, ASI, as you said, is a part of AOPA, although they're separately funded. It's it's a foundation, and the goal of the Air Safety Institute is to pr- promote safety in GA and provide free training and tutorials, resources, and support to keep GA safe and to grow the pilot population. I was attracted to AOPA and specifically ASI as a lifelong performer i thought maybe that might be a good partnership to be a presenter for them and i applied they required a, a video of me presenting in aviation so i rented an outdoor shelter and did a presentation about survival gear and somebody videoed it for me and i sent it and I guess my package was good enough because they accepted me and that's been great. I've loved working with them. The pandemic, we're all grounded. um, So we haven't been doing those wonderful things, but I'm sure it will come back.
0: I have to say, I'm particularly a fan of the air safety Institute's real pilot stories and also the there I was podcast. They, they do such a phenomenal job at pointing out universal general aviation challenges and Oh, I, I highly, highly recommend the Air Safety Institute videos.
1: Yeah, that's great. And it's real people talking about their real mistakes, like being willing to be vulnerable to share. So we all learn. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I
0: think the Air Safety Institute does such a phenomenal job with the, even just their quality of video production.
1: Yeah, they it's- do. They have a great team. I know. And Richard, Richard McSpadden is who hired me. Um, he's a great guy. Doing a lot of good stuff.
0: Now the organization Ladies Love Tail Draggers has annual flight training scholarships for women, ranging from seaplane endorsements, mountain flying checkouts and tailwheel endorsements. How did you become involved with this organization?
1: Oh my goodness, as a woman owning a tail dragger, it was wonderful. We do fly-ins once, at least once a year and it's pretty cool to meet a bunch of women who run and fly tail draggers. Uh, Judy Birchler, was like standing around thinking, hey, are there any women that do this? Because she kept meeting all these men that were tail druggers. So she founded the organization and it's it's got a, a nice, lovely following. And um, yeah, it's really great.
0: Now, with regards to the scholarship element of Ladies Love Tail Draggers, how did you decide to have a scholarship and donate your time and expertise to the organization?
1: Well, again, that's was a no-brainer for me as a, CFI. I love to CFI. I'm a tail dragger pilot. I love being a tail dragger pilot. I'm a woman. I like being a woman. That was just a win-win. And, um, you know, giving, always giving is important in GA. Now it's also my career. So, you know, I have to balance that, but that was a no-brainer. Very exciting.
0: Now, what advice did you have for a pilot considering a tailwheel endorsement or checkout?
1: Right. Well, uh, getting your endorsement is just kind of the beginning of the journey. The endorsement for us, I think it's 61.103, really requires that the pilot demonstrate the different types of landings and takeoffs and go arounds and crosswind landings and takeoffs. So it's, it's what you learn in that particular tailwheel. So I would say my advice is Find somebody that you would enjoy flying with. Read a little bit before, read a lot while you're doing your training, because that physical connection and, oh, that's why, you know, is important. And then um, really after the endorsements, insurance kind of makes sure you're safe, because if you buy a tailwheel, there's requirements for dual training beyond the endorsement. And that kind of that kind of keeps us safe out there.
0: What do you find is consistently the biggest challenge for pilots that are getting a checkout on a tailwheel aircraft who traditionally only have tricycle gear time?
1: Oh, I would say waking up those hips and feeling the yaw factor. Um, you know, that saying of fly it all the way to the hangar, obviously, super true with a tailwheel. You've got this big, huge mass, you know, on a little tiny nose castering wheel that just a little puff of wind can make it decide to go one way or the other. And we can manage that, but you can't grab it afterwards. It's like you can't stop that tail from grabbing the wind. You have to be ahead of it. And that's just a great thing. That's really great. Um, A lot of some tail wheels are side by side. The tandems are, I find really exciting because you're actually in the middle of the airplane and that's really cool. Now,
0: part of your flying experience when it comes to tailwheel aircraft includes backcountry flying and off-airport flying. Can you tell me a little bit more about the unique aspects of this facet of aviation?
1: Sure. I love that. There comes a shift in awareness as a pilot when flight becomes energy management and not just what are my numbers, and I think the backcountry often involves different terrain, density, altitude, short and soft field landings. There may be a grade to the strip. In other words, which way is the creek flowing or crick flowing, depending on what part of the country you're in. And you need to land up crick and take off down crick. So there's all these other components that become priority in backcountry flying that we don't always have at the beginning of our training. Your hips, your body, your brain all have to be engaged to encompass all these factors. Um, and it's, it's awesome because it's, uh, it's pages and silos beyond the norm. I, at this point, I want to encourage <laughs> and just require anybody that wants to do backcountry flying that you train with somebody who does that in the area you're going to be flying That's super, super important. And then it's fun backcountry flying. It's my cup of tea, it's camping and hiking. And, you know, I was always the concert soprano who showed up with no makeup and hiking boots. So, you know, that kind of flying fits me to my core.
0: I haven't done any backcountry flying. I have been very fortunate to do quite a bit of float flying. And Ooh. the idea to me of doing off airport uh, flying and uh, maneuvering, I think that would be very, very cool.
1: Yeah, you learn a lot, a lot. But you really need to learn it with somebody who knows how to do it. <laughs> I i mean, I've gone to a couple different mountain training people and I'll continue, you know, when I go to a place I haven't been, I'll always fly with a a current person there.
0: Now, you are also a trained Cirrus aircraft instructor. What was the certification process like and how does instruction in the Cirrus compare to other
1: aircraft? First and foremost, Cirrus has a terrific program. Their training has been well documented, defined. I'm a fan of freedom and rules if there are if there's a syllabus to follow, and this their training program is just terrific, top-notch. To become a trained Cirrus instructor, you have to work with a, um, one of their trained Cirrus instructors. And you go through training online and pass courses with them. And then you've got some dual in the aircraft. Cirrus, for our FAA purposes, is called a TAA, a technically advanced aircraft, um, which is allowed to be used as a complex um, substitute for some of our requirements. That's because of the glass cockpit. Usually it's a, now they are primarily the Garmin 1000. So you've got that component. Um, they also have the parachute. So of, of the two things that are different from the other aircraft, I would say you know the glass cockpit, which is now available in 172s. Now that's just we're we're in a whole different, a whole different uh, approach to avionics now. That's exciting, but also requires a big responsibility for all of us. You can't just hop in any 172 now. You have to understand the glass in the cockpit as well. But Cirrus is great, and you know I I will give you a a truthful disclaimer here that I'm actually not current. The currency to maintain a trained Cirrus instructor rating is every bit as uh, required as learning. And so I'm out of currency because I'm a DPE now and do a tailwheel, but it's, it's good. I applaud the Cirrus training department.
0: Now, as you mentioned, Cirrus famously has the parachute on their aircraft. How does how do you feel knowing that there is a parachute on your aircraft, maybe influence the way you approach it as a student and also as an instructor?
1: Great question. When I was being checked out to be a Cirrus instructor, one of the things was an engine out scenario. And of course, I defaulted to my normal training. Well, I'm going to glide and there's my field. And, the, and my instructor said, nope, Busted. You've got, you don't land it in a field with a Cirrus. At a certain point, you pull a parachute (laughs) and that's a different mindset. So they are very organized about that. And there's a checklist, every takeoff about where you, where your safe altitudes are, when you pull it immediately, when you can position yourself to get to a good place and then pull it. It's very organized. And I I do think it's, I do know that it has saved lives for people who have followed the protocol. I think it also, spouses like it, who maybe aren't very comfortable flying. And I know several people who have bought Cirrus specifically for that reason.
0: The few people I know who own Cirruses or have access to those aircraft really do enjoy flying them. And I can imagine the training is uh, as world-class as you can imagine.
1: Yeah, it actually is. I, I, again, I'll say again, I applaud I applaud their syllabi and and how serious they take that training. And they are great planes. I mean, personally, I like a plane that has a bigger payload. um, But not everybody likes to do that kind of stuff. And for those people that are commuting or flying distances and don't have a lot of people or a lot of gear, they're wonderful. It's fun to have a little stick on the side.
0: Now, what is the most rewarding aspect about being a flight instructor?
1: Building blocks to help the client and the pilot be a confident, safe pilot, I think is my most delicious challenge of being an instructor. I like helping students get over the hump, you know, or figuring out how to make the equation of their life, be able to be a pilot, a safe, current pilot. And I like encouraging my students to have meaningful flight you know, how is this going to be a part of your life and your family's life? And how can you get a part of your GA community and, you know, connecting people? So, you know, they've got their license and then they're using it for really cool things.
0: Now, what advice did you have for someone starting an instructor rating?
1: Oh, I traveled to an award-winning CFI for two weekends. I went, I f- flew to that person, spent the whole weekend. They gave me eight hours on Saturday, eight hours on Sunday. I did that for two weekends. And that gave me a chance to really submerge myself in the materials and the learning lesson plan flows and content. And um, that was great. But, and then I went home and converted all those lesson plans into my own handwriting. So I practice that flow for myself. And I think uh, it's important to remember that not everybody learns the way you learn and to be aware that you need to be aware of all of the senses and, and provide those for your students, depending on what works for them. Some people need to hear it and see it. Some people just need to read it. And they don't want to sit around and do ground school. <laughs> you know, some people need the ground school and need that conversation for it to become a part of them. So it just depends on the client. Um, and I, I think I would reinforce how important a post conversation and a debrief conversation is always important and must be a part of that. And if that means you fly less to make sure you get that post and indeed de- that, Not to minimize that. Um, That helps the brain to know where you're going and what you did and what's next. Um, Always have a plan, a syllabus that everybody understands and knows, but it's okay to chase a rabbit. Because in aviation, we chase a lot of rabbits. An opportunity comes up and and you, you go there for a little bit, and that's okay too.
0: Now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why?
1: Well, I admire career pilots who keep and practice stick and rudder flying. I admire, uh, Don as an example. He was one of the first 747 pilots yet till he passed away recently in his nineties, he could be found in a red barn on a grass strip in Ohio tinkering with tail wheels. I mean, or Lynn, who was a corporate pilot, a military helicopter, lifelong, who gave me my tailwheel endorsement in his Satabria. I admire those people who have made it a career and flown the big boys, but come back to the stick and rudder. I, I like that. There's a woman named Carol Ann Garrett, who her mother died of Lou Gehrig's disease. And so she decided to fly around the world and raise money for Lou Gehrig's disease. And she did that three times. And she was an award, uh, she did it the fastest, I think in 2008. I went to Lake Tahoe to do backcountry mountain flying training. It was my second training to do in the Sierras. And she was there Doing gliders. She just loved to glide now. She's not doing the power going around the world. But I met Carol Ann. She gave me a book. And, you know, there are so many people I admire. But I think it's the ones that reached a point that I never will because I started this too late in life. I'm not going to fly over the pond. I'm not going to become a military pilot. But I am making GA my silo. And I love the people that have done the other stuff, and still come back to stick and rudder. They still come back to that original passion.
0: Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career?
1: I would say one of my highlights was being invited to be a part of the Port Columbus 90-year anniversary celebration. Port Columbus, where my home is, is where Jerry Mock left to fly around the world, the first woman to successfully fly solo around the world in which she did it in a Cessna 180 of which I now own a Cessna 180, 185. So that's kind of cool. But this 90 year anniversary was to celebrate. Um, Charles Lindbergh visited Columbus and said, I want to make this a part of the TAT stop. And so we said, okay, cool. So it was largely his... His making that request, so Columbus was on the first transcontinental air transportation called the Lindbergh line. Um, It was using aircraft and railroad. They couldn't really fly the whole way (laughs) from coast to coast, but pretty much close to that. Um, So I was invited to be there because I own the type of plane that Jerry Mock flew. So it was my airplane and a, a Waco um, was there. We actually had a, a NetJets had the citation there. Um, and then I got to to meet and talk to in a picture with Jerry Mock's sister, Susan Reed, who is there. And I think I was just so proud to kind of represent a woman, represent a tail dragger, represent um, Jerry Mock, represent... The first transatlantic, you know, it was just a really nice, I felt very proud to be there uh, with my airplane. So I think that was one of my highlights. It was hard to to figure that out because just flying every flight is a highlight, but
0: <laughs> that does sound like it would be a particularly lovely and such a special event to have been a part of.
1: Yeah. If if you don't mind me pigging back on that, the original tower that was built in 229 was almost demolished, and it's being renovated now, and it's going to become the Ohio Air and Space Hall of Fame and Museum, and I've been asked to be on the founding board for that, so I'm pretty excited to, to be involved in that.
0: I was going to say it doesn't sound like there could be many events that would top the the celebration and sorry, rather, that would have topped that celebration, but being part or asked to join rather a founding board of Ohio's aviation history museum. That's pretty, pretty something.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, that's a great honor. And I, I promise them I will work hard for them.
0: (laughs) Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media?
1: Sure. I have a a personal website, christinemortine.com, where you can see what I do and reach out to me and contact me. Feel free to ask me any questions about anything we've talked about or just say, hey.
0: Christine Mortine, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
1: It was a pleasure, Laura. You're terrific.
0: The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, The Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.